Hi, I'm Heidi Bragg, and this is Life, Cancer, Etc. The goal of this podcast is to connect you with resources that will improve your life so you can be happier, more resilient, and less stressed. Since Thanksgiving was a couple of days ago, I wanted to talk about some of the things that I'm thankful for. And especially right now, I am thankful that I don't have to have open heart surgery anytime, at least for the next month. There was an area of concern on my last PET scan. We've done numerous tests since then and haven't really been able to see it in the last couple. So that may just be because of the angle of what we were looking at, or it may um, be because that area is not there anymore. So we will follow up with that on my PET scan in a few weeks. And just to explain, on a PET scan, they're giving you a radioactive isotope. So something that's going to fire is what they call it, which means it shines, it shows up brighter on the PET scan. They give you that radioactive isotope in a glucose or sugar base. So they, they just, you get an IV, they inject it. And in areas where there is increased metabolic activity, where the cells are growing and dividing really quickly, those will be brighter. And to get a good PET scan, for example, they ask you not to do a hard workout for, I can't remember if it's 24 or 48 hours before, because any of those places where your body's trying to heal, where those muscle fibers have been torn, those are going to fire. They're going to show up brighter on a PET scan. So to get a really good picture, they ask you to not eat simple carbs and sugars uh, the day before, especially the day of. Uh, You can eat a protein-based breakfast like eggs or something like that. But then after that, they don't want you to have anything that's a carb or a sugar. And for me, I, the day before my PET scans, I only eat protein and vegetables because I want to make sure I'm getting as much of the sugars out of my system as possible so they'll get a really good picture. So yeah, um, I'm really grateful because I thought I was going to have to have open heart surgery almost immediately. And now I may not have to have it at all. A second one. This is the second one for me, which would be great. As I mentioned in the first podcast, I love the pool. I love the beach. We live in Southwest Florida. So even though it's cold, I can still go swimming both those places. And I just, I love that. I love looking for cool shells at the beach. Um, I love going out to the pool after work and just, I just like to relax and listen to a podcast or whatever. And then I sit there and tread water for half an hour, an hour. And that's my way to de-stress. I'm so, so, so grateful for my husband, Kev. He's, he's this amazing, supportive, strong, totally present partner. And that is a huge gift. I realize that. Um, He's also got this, like, he's incredibly intelligent and has this wicked sense of humor that I just, I just love. He's amazing. I love our kids. I love watching them grow and develop, and they're from 16 to 27 in age, so we've got quite a wide span, but it's neat to see them. They're all very individualistic, 
but it's neat to see how they're finding their way through life and figuring out what they want to do and trying to do good in the world. There's really good people. I'm also super grateful for the power of optimism and gratitude. Now, here's the caveat. I hate it when something bad happens and people say, well, it could always be worse. It's like, yes, it could. But could you wait to tell me that? I always tell people, give me 24 to 48 hours to be bitter and resentful. And it usually doesn't take me nearly that long. But allow me that time to be upset and frustrated and negative and whatever as I'm trying to deal with this new thing and feel all the feelings that are coming up. And then you can say something to me like, well, it could be worse. Because that's true. Flat out, it could always be worse always. But don't tell me that right off the bat. One thing, we've had two favorite therapists in life. And one is Doug, and one is who was our therapist like almost 20 years ago. And Sharon, who's our therapist now. And she has said, she's telling me all the time, you got to feel your feelings. Like if you try to stuff them down, like, oh, I shouldn't feel that way. Or Oh, I don't, I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to be negative. If you stuff those things down, they will come back to bite you repeatedly. So take it from someone who's done that and realized it's not a successful or an effective way of dealing with things. Allow yourself to feel. Allow your, it's going to be overwhelming. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to be angry. Feel all those things. Don't stuff those feelings down. And then come up with a plan and move forward. I love this. It's a quote from Charlie, one of my friends on Facebook that I met through a women's organization I belong to. And she talked about after her mother died and her mother had had some serious, serious health problems. They, her daughter, they had their kids, all the grandkids were allowed to go in and take something of their grandmother's, choose one thing of their grandmother's that they wanted to have with them. And her 12-year-old daughter chose this, she said it, it was a, this little note written on a scrap of paper in her mother's shaky handwriting that was stuck to her bedroom wall. And it said, pain is a part of life, misery is optional. And I totally believe that. Dealing with pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, emotional, I said emotional, physical, emotional, or spiritual All of that is just part of being human, part of going through this experience, part of living life. But you don't have to be miserable. Feel your feelings, deal with the things that come up, and then find a plan and move forward with hope and as much optimism as you can muster. Because even when things are really, really hard, there are good things that can come out of it. So for the second half of this today, I want to get to some of the questions that friends asked or answered when I posted a couple months ago as I was prepping to do this podcast. I asked, what are some things particularly around the topic of cancer? And that's not all we're going to talk about all the time, because that's why it's life cancer, etc., not cancer, etc. We're not only going to talk about cancer. But in these first few episodes, 
that's going to be a lot of the focus. And so these are questions from people or answers from people who have dealt with cancer in their families. The first one is from Anne. Anne was our children's, our children's elementary school principal, and she was just amazing. She had recently lost a daughter to cancer when I got diagnosed the first time. And she was amazing with our kids. She started a meal train for our family. I mean, this is a school of like, I think it had 12 or 1300 kids. And she was just right there for us. It, it was amazing. So this is something Anne said. She said, one thing I learned when I walked through this with my daughter is that sometimes caregivers need to be still. Amber told me how much she loved me as a caregiver because I knew when to be still and quiet. She said, I know that's not a question, but that might be something someone needs to hear. And that is so true. So 20-something years ago, my sister Mindy had a brain tumor. And we had tried various treatments. She was at MD Anderson in Houston. We had tried various treatments and she had tried stage one trials of a drug. So that's like the first time they give it to humans after it being in the lab with animals and whatever. And we were very hopeful that maybe this would be the thing because her tumor was the kind that forms a mass and then sends tendrils out into the brain. So it's really, really hard to wipe out completely. It was called an anaplastic astrocytoma, if you want to look that up. And... In July, I believe, my mom's going to do one of these podcasts, so she'll, I'll ask her about that, and she can correct me then if I'm wrong, but I think it was July, and Mindy died in December. So July of the year she passed, we found out that the cancer was back, that the stage one trials hadn't worked, and that it was all over her brain. And I asked her, I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to talk with you about this, if it's better that I don't talk with you about this. I just, I don't know what to do. And she said, Hyde, sometimes I think it's easier being the one who's sick. And at the time, I just thought that was so bizarre. It's like, how could it be easier for her? She, she, she's going through all of this. But then as I went through it and have gone through it a few times now, I think in some ways that's right because you know what you're going through. You know what you're experiencing. Uh, most of the time, you know what you need or what you don't. And, and sometimes you can't articulate that necessarily to someone else. And on the outside, when you're a caregiver, you're trying really hard to try and make things better for that person. But sometimes the best thing you can do is just be still and just sit with them. And I thought about the times with Mindy where I'd you know, sit on the side of her bed or, you know, hold her hand or we just kind of be together. And some of those were what she needed, especially towards the end. It was giving her space. Um, I, I feel like it was giving her space to prepare for this next big step of moving to the other side. Anyway, so think about that. Think about knowing when to be still, that you don't always have to be up and doing things, that you can allow some stillness and some time when you're helping somebody. So Angela, who's one of my co-workers, technically she's my boss, but she's also my friend. Um, she said, why do they publish statistics when, they're evolve when they are evolving so quickly and mean almost nothing? 
I personally think it's most important to let people have their feelings. They need to know that the emotions run the gamut and that's totally okay. Feel what you feel and what you need. And Angela went through cancer with her mother-in-law. And I think there are two things here I want to hit on. One, I'm a voracious researcher. I think I said that in one of the previous one of these. But when I first got diagnosed with my second cancer, with the sarcoma, I didn't even look things up because I didn't want to know because I knew the odds were not good. It was 95% fatal. If they came up with odds at all, that was the best they could give me as a 5% window. And I just... I, I didn't I didn't want to know how bad it could be because I had to focus on that five percent chance. And so that's what I did everything I could to get that five percent shot. And so far, you know, knock wood and, and literally thank God, so far that's working. And I totally agree. This goes like we said I said before, you've gotta let people feel their feelings. Stuffing it down does no good for anybody. And then Rhonda, another one of my coworkers, said, Is there anything you don't want to hear from friends? And at first, I misunderstood what she was asking. And she said, I've just heard from others that there are expressions from some well meaning friends that are not helpful, that are irritating, or that seem trite. So, how do you, you know, knowing how to express your concern, your love, what do you need in a way that's received as well as it's intended is what I wanted to ask. I had a friend get really irritated with people who were trying to express their concern and I hadn't thought about that before. So I've tried to be sensitive. And my friend Bonnie said, yeah, things like the good Lord doesn't give you more than you can handle. And as Tay and I discussed last week, sure he does. He gives you more than you can handle on your own. He doesn't give you more than he can handle or that you can handle with him. But a lot of the things we go through in life are completely overwhelming. And telling people that is not helpful. I remember at my sister Mindy's funeral, we were standing, the family was standing, you know, to to greet people as they came in. And one person came up and said, you know, I'm so sorry, but thank goodness you've got six other kids because I come from a family of seven. And I was livid. I was jumping out of my skin. And my mom was just very gracious. And I just bit the side of my cheek until this person passed through the line, I said, how can, how can you stand here and take that and hear that without wanting to smack them upside the head? And mom said, hide because they just don't know what to say. They're coming from a place of caring. They want to do something that makes you feel better, but they just don't know how. So I try to look at it that way. And I really appreciated her perspective on that. Um, so my friend Kelsey, whose mom, Kathy, went through cancer, Kathy's doing great, and her brother Ben did too, and Ben's doing well now too, Um, said one thing she found super helpful when mom was going through treatments was for someone to drive and accompany her in appointments and take notes. Okay, now, with COVID, many cancer centers don't allow that because they're trying to protect their severely immunocompromised patients. Totally get that. It's that way at Moffitt where I go, except for surgeries and certain other things, like if you're in the bone marrow unit with someone or if someone has like a cognitive disorder, they can have one healthy support person who gets screened before they come in. But in general, you go by yourself. However, this evidence still holds. COVID's not going to last forever, but this evidence is great. She says, if you're the person who goes in with the patient, write down what the doctor says, not what the patient hears. Under that kind of stress and worry, patients often don't hear everything the doctor says or hear it correctly. 
we were able to clear up a lot of confusion and questions and fear by going back to the notes. And the support of having someone there to drive is always helpful anyway. And my friend Michelle, whose husband Jay has been going through cancer, said, this is super important. I can't count the number of times I wrote down what Jay's team would say and that he heard something else entirely, which is, I mean, it totally happens. So for me, since I go by myself most of the time, uh, as things come up between appointments, I make notes on my phone about issues I want to discuss. And I write which doctor at the top because I have a lot of different specialists. So I wrote, I write like, you know, doctor this, here are the things. And then I also write things down as the doctor and I are talking. That helps me a lot because I'm, I am going to those appointments alone. And even um, one of my surgeries, I had to go to by myself. So Kev just kind of dropped me at the door, picked me up a few hours later. Uh, you know, that was just the way things were done. Um, he couldn't go, like he couldn't go back with me. Usually he would, he would go back in the pre-op and be there in post-op. And instead they brought me out to him. Um, but I, I get why they're doing that because that's our best shot at keeping me and people who are much more vulnerable than me as safe as possible. But having everything written down and having whoever, if somebody does go with you, having them write things down is really, really helpful. We talked last week with Tay about having a binder or in my case, I have a patient portal and I go to virtually all my appointments at the same cancer center. So I can go in their patient portal and get notes from each visit. I can get the radiology reports, my lab reports, everything. So keeping everything in one place, or if you're going to different places, making sure you ask for a CD of your scans and ask for a copy of the report and keeping all that together is really important because then you just take that whole ba binder of, or bag of stuff with you to all your appointments. So everything's in one place. And then if a new doctor needs information, you've got it in that one place. Michelle also said, one thing I was told at the beginning of my husband's journey was to allow yourself to grieve. And this goes for both the individual going through cancer as well as their spouse or loved ones. It's strange enough going through your own grieving process, she says, and it's okay to fire the oncologist if things don't feel right about their approach. Shopping around for the right doctor is just as important as fighting the cancer. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Having doctors that you trust and that are a good fit for you and that know exactly what's going on with your type of cancer, because all cancers aren't the same, is really, really important. So take time to find someone that is a good fit for you and that has good experience with the cancer you are dealing with. And then um, I have some other questions that are specific medical questions. So we will ask those. I'm hoping to have a couple of my doctors come on here. And so as I get the details of that worked out, we will ask them some of these other questions. Deb asked some, and so did my friend Donna. Um, so, you know, none of this is easy at all. And even if you say you don't have, the, you're not, you're just a friend. You're not someone in the family of the person with cancer. But my friend Serena had a question. She said, how distancing should you be with someone with cancer or fighting cancer who's had cancer, who's in remission? And let me stop right here and say this is all pre-COVID. With COVID, stay away. Be super, super, super careful because people are immunocompromised. And chemo itself does a, does a big number on your immune system. 
So even though I am currently pretty healthy, my immune system may not be fighting things off the way it needs to be. So please be more careful than you probably feel you need to be with people who could be immunocompromised. So she said, we all know immune systems are compromised, but how concerned should we be? That, again, pre-COVID. And this will be the same post-COVID. COVID's not going to last forever. She said, I remember sitting in church, freaking out internally because I was only one seat away from a person who was fighting cancer and wondering if I should get up and move because I had felt maybe a mild sniffle starting that morning. She And so I said, I explained that my other friend Kelly and her kids used to sit behind me at church. And we loved that. And when, you know, I was away for a long time with chemo and waiting for my immune system to build back up so I could go back out in public again, pre-COVID. But I said, once I was done with chemo and came back to church, they moved across the chapel. But Kelly did let me know it was because she didn't want to expose me to anything if one of the girls was sick. Because the girls would come up and sit with us, you know, we'd hug them. We were very close with their family, those children particularly. And she's like, they're, you know, they're little Petri dishes and could pick up anything at school. So in my mind, the person fighting cancer should set appropriate boundaries. However, if I knew someone was immunocompromised like that and wasn't moving, I would probably change seats because I wouldn't want to put them at risk. I just think let's be a little kinder and more concerned about the other people than maybe we need to be. And let's let them know that's why we're moving, because then they know, hey, you're just trying to keep me safe. It's not because, you know, I stink or I need more deodorant or whatever. Um, anyway, thanks for listening today. I really appreciate it. And if you have a question that you'd like answered or you'd like me to do research on, please leave a note on our Facebook page, Life Cancer, etc. It's got the same logo as the podcast. We also have an Instagram, and I really need to actually check that more frequently than I do. You could leave a comment there, and I'll do my best to get you an answer. So this week, especially after Thanksgiving, I hope that you can look for the good and count your blessings and make it a really, really great week. 